pale horse. The man who sat on him was dead. And hell followed with him. You're killing me, man. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Declarations of War. I am your host, Alexei Avkar, joined by my co-host, Artemis Albosa. Howdy, howdy. Yin, I believe, is probably focusing on Alliance Tournament stuff today, was not able to join us. Uh, we also tried to get Hugh Kasawak, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, as our guest. He is the creator of the 1900 Updates on Reddit. He was not able to join us in person, but we do have a very special news update from him. Sent in remotely. That'll be here later in the broadcast. But first, some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to Spectre Fleets Command Corps for helping me get set up with and navigate their system for posting fleets. It's actually pretty involved, but uh, they were very gracious and very patient and uh, had my first fleet, and we'll talk more about that later in the show. Artemis? My shout-out goes once again to my Noir Bros, because they still deserve it. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing the Noir fam in Vegas. Should be good. Alright, Eve Onion, our sponsor. Much love for these guys. If you want to get the hard-hitting news on Eve, uh, that's where you need to be, okay? They've got everything. They've got uh, information that no one else will put out, uh, stories no one else will touch. For instance, the Imperium News Network Fraught over losing their market share, has decided to copy many aspects of the Eve Onion, which is blowing them out of the water in terms of just viewer eyeballs here in New Eden. How? Why? Who's behind this? Find out more at eveonion.com. We break the news of Eve Online. Alright, we had a poll. What was people's greatest concern about the Abyss patch? We had RNG module buffing, instance PvE, something else entirely, nothing, it's fine, and it's different and I'm scared. 44% of the audience, the vast majority, says that it's the RNG module buffing, which once again, I, you know, I just don't quite understand why people are so mad about it. It's different for sure, it's, but at the same time... Is it really that bad? I, mean, I don't know. Honestly, Maybe I'll be sure wrong. Why. I'll prove wrong with like, I don't know, the servers combusting into flames or something. But it just doesn't seem that bad. I'm not sure why you're surprised there's so much outrage. Like, think about the only other RNG feature, the only other RNG mechanic in this game is ECM, and you know how much people hate ECM, <laughs> and they introduce RNG to this game. That is part of PvE, and it has the ability to break balance, like make people people already struggle with fitting their ships, and it's going to make that even more difficult, especially for like the people who want to be elite PvP, maximizing, min-maxing everything. Like it's going to make their lives more difficult. It's an RNG feature. They already have had bad experiences with CCP's RNG mechanics. Like I am not surprised at the outrage, but then again. Guys, you need to calm down. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. If you're having trouble figuring out your ship fittings, maybe you're not as elite PvP as you thought you were. Is that fair to say? 
I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> maybe the maybe you were just thought you were in the elite, but really you were just copying the elite. I gotta give a shout out to the few folks who said it's <laughs> and I'm scared. That's the one not... person. Well, I mean, you gotta imagine that there are actually a, a good number of these people. It's just this one person was the bravest of the scared, and I want to shout him out for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I too think he deserves a shout out. The intellectual honesty. There's nothing else. Good on you, mate. Well, speaking of breaking the game and player outrage, CSM voting is underway. Oh, dear. Who will carry the torches and pitchforks on your behalf? We're finding out right now. I believe today is the last day of voting as we record this show. But I still thought it might be fun to take a look at our ballots, respectively, and uh, also cover one of the major controversies from the election so far. Artemis, who did you have? On my ballot? Yes. I don't remember. Because you know what I did, Alec? It's this crazy thing. Okay. So MC doesn't have a ballot, literally, like people were asking Alliance leadership for a ballot, and so Danny made a forum post that said, hey guys, we don't do ballots, uh, here's everyone who's running that's currently blue to us, have fun! Ha! But So what I did, is I did this crazy thing, I googled CSM13 candidate posts, alright, and then CCP has this fantastic webpage, where every single one of the CSM candidates made this forum post where they talk about their platform, they talk about their history, they talk about why they sh why you should vote for them on the CSM. So I went to that page, I read through them all, and just at that time, whichever one I thought, hmm, you know what, I like this person's points, I don't remember hearing anything terrible about them, I'll give them a vote. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> And I would highly recommend it. Like, going out, getting further information, getting people's opinions on who you should vote for is worthwhile, but the fact of the matter is, every EVE player is going to be different. If you vote by your block, if you vote by whatever just you happen to be recommended by your favorite podcast host, you're probably hey now. not going to be voting for the kind of gameplay that you really want. Hey now. Okay. Let's see what you're saying. But let me counter with this. Yin for the win. <sighs> <laughs> so, of course, Declarations of War put out our ballot, as we do every year. Uh, Yin Tan, of course, our number one. I think he's, on, he's not just a co-host of the show. I think he's done a legitimately fantastic job as a CSM and has shown remarkable resilience against burnout, given the demands that CSM places on people. So I think he's very deserving of number one spot. Number two, Otto Bismarck. Um, he is a huge contributor to the EVE community. Pretty much the leader of the EVE community in Australia. He runs meetups. He runs sites. He does outreach to player organizations. Uh, he's long overdue for being recognized for that work. I believe he like almost got in before. And now I'm, I'm putting him as my number two. because Doesn't he make awesome YouTube videos? He does. He makes a lot of awesome stuff. Like he was, um, he was in, involved with Evebet very closely before it shut down, which is super unfortunate. Rip. But what he used to do with that money was he was like essentially in charge of their player outreach, 
So any podcast that wanted it would get a sponsorship. Any Eve tournament or Eve event, you know, he would do whatever, give you codes, give you promotion, uh, couldn't help you enough. Invited me down to Eve Down Under to speak and just, you know, treated me like a rock star the entire time. Absolutely fabulous guy. Um, so he's in there with my number two. Number three, Brisk Ruval. Uh, very impressive. I, I wasn't sure what to make of him, you know, but uh, he's not just a good campaign commercial. He did a fabulous job on our podcast, CSM 13 Candidate Roundtable. That would be uh, episode 155, if you're interested in going back and looking. We had Suetonia, Commander A's, and Brisk, and I found Brisk to be very impressive. I think his real-life experience and his Eve experience are a fantastic pairing, and to be a real asset to the community as an advocate. So, he's in. Then we got Bay Art J, another Otto Bismarckish type guy. He is one of the leaders of Eve NT, also in Plus 10 Gaming now. Uh, organizing tournaments, organizing news, uh, organizing meetups. He's he's basically helping to run the entire Alliance tournament this year. Uh, as much as CCP is involved, I think the players involved and even T are more involved. I he's fantastic. Uh, a must vote. He's a fan. He's just a good guy to be around. Very selfless. Has given so much to the community. I think he's got more to give in a CSM role. And we won't go through the whole ballot necessarily, but uh, Steve Ronekin and Suetonia, Commander A's, my five, six, and sevens. Um, Killa B. I mean, we need good content creators in the CSM. And Killa B is one of the top FCs in the game, so he needs to be up in there. Uh, of course, got to have a few good Empire guys. I got Sullen and Chainsaw, Sullen Decimus and Chainsaw Plankton. They rounded out my ballot. But I think this could be A's year. I hope it is. He's tried. He's tied for most unsuccessful CSM runs. Um, <laughs> he's tied with Mike Azariah, who not only got elected on his last try, but got reelected several times. So hopefully this is the charm for him. And if not, he'll be the new record holder. So it's kind of a win-win for him, even if he loses. If you were listening carefully there, CSM candidates... You'll notice when he was talking about Otto Bismarck, the way to get a number two slot on Alexi of Carr's ballot is to invite him to player meetups and treat him like a rock star. Shuffle out some misc, shuffle out some codes, grease the wheels. Well, this is a mercenary podcast, Artemis. I'll have you, I'll have you know. So, uh, you know, it certainly can't hurt. I wonder what Brisk paid to get the number three slot. Oh no, number four. Ray Archer was above Brisk. Or was he? I can't remember. You don't remember Brisk or Ball? No, I can't remember what order it was in your... Um... Oh, uh, Yin, Otto, Brisk, Bay, Steve, Suetonia, Commander A's, Killaby, Sullen, and Chainsaw. Gotcha. I actually wasn't sure on my tenth spot. I, I had a lot of contenders to go in there. Ultimately, I, went with Chainsaw Plankton more on the name than anything else. <laughs> he was the tiebreaker. I can say that I only voted for seven people, not ten. I, you know, I strongly encourage everyone to pick their ten. I know it's a little extra work, but you never know. And with CCP's single transferable vote thing, 
you know, your votes will be counted all the way down if needed. You know, you want to get the, uh, the council that you really want and make sure your vote goes to the person that needs it. So if Yin, Otto, Bismarck, Brisk, and Bay, and Steve, Tony, and A's, and Killaby all get elected, and Sullen gets reelected, you know, my vote will still count if I have that 10th. So I like putting in the 10. I recommend it. But of course, people can vote for as few or as many candidates as they want. Well, you know who they can't vote for? Creature. <laughs> yes. Uh, why don't you kick that off, Arnos? So just to recap for anyone who's unfamiliar, Creature was the candidate predominantly for Test Alliance Please Ignore, presumably Legacy Coalition as a whole. And essentially what happened is he ran for CSM this year, he made it through, CCP approved him as a candidate, voting started, and then midway through the voting, somebody found some old chat logs between Creature and someone else who he was talking to in-game, and he used some extremely inflammatory language. And so this was posted to Reddit, and then this was posted, more importantly, I think, to CCP's, the forums, like the EVE Online forums, to his candidate thread. And then CCP, in response to this, made a post saying, this stuff has come out, we would have found this when we did the background check, if he were to have been elected, but because we are seeing this now, we're just going to remove him from the election, all your votes will be transferred to the next person if you've already voted for him, but nobody new can go and vote for him, he is not eligible this year. And that has caused quite the controversy, because... The person who brought it to light was from PL, and PL was recently kicked out of Pravi by Test Alliance Please Ignore and Legacy Coalition. Also, this is sort of CCP enacting something which they haven't done really in the past. Like, there's been a bit of screening as far as, is this person going to work well on the team of the CSM? But that hasn't been going through your chat logs and seeing if you're using bad language and then saying you're disqualified. Moreover, this was a two-year-old chat log, and so this seems like CCP is introducing some policy changes or something like that more recently, and then making them retroactively take effect. So if you've done something in the past, people are worried that this is going to affect your abilities going into the future on whatever CCP happens to decide is the right thing to do at the time. Wouldn't that be the definition of a background check, though? To an extent, but the argument is that the precedence has been that these background checks, your previous chat logs and things don't matter. Like if it was a personal chat log between two individuals, if it wasn't you going out in a public forum and saying terrible, nasty things, then CCP generally didn't care. Because I don't think anyone is willing to say, looking through the list of all of the previous CSM candidates, yeah, none of these guys said anything remotely close to what Creature said in his thing. But well, so one thing I was interested in, it wasn't clear to me from, from reading about it, was the conversation private between the two? And if so, how did it get leaked? It would have had to have been the other party in the conversation, yeah. I believe so. Well, that's interesting. My sort of view on that is private online communications, at least as far as the company involved, they should be private. But if the other party says like, oh shit, they're saying something that's really awful, I'm going to report it to you. 
then they should be able to take a look at it and take any actions they feel are necessary based on their policies. So, I don't know. I don't really have that much of an issue with it. It's not like they went in and snooped on every private conversation he's ever had. The person he was talking to was like, oh, fuck. You know, this is something that CCP needs to know about. They reported it up. Well, no, they didn't report it to CCP, or at least CCP didn't care. Like, it it was made public two years ago when it happened, or around that time. And then it just laid dormant. And basically, the story that was told was that a PL guys were sitting on comms, and they were going through CSM candidates. Somebody recognized the name, did some digging, and found that this was previously posted to Reddit, and then re-brought it up into the conversation. So the the... The main argument against CCP's action here is that they're not going back through everyone's chat logs and checking. It's that they are selectively administering this rule only if someone else who has a grudge, say, against the candidate brings this stuff to light. And so that's what people are really having an issue with. Ah, so this was public beforehand. Mm Mm-hmm. And Creature did not get any in-game punishment for it. He wasn't banned. He wasn't, like, muted on the forums or anything. CCP hadn't even told him that he can't run in the future. It's just he's pulled from this race. And so a lot of people see it as sort of CCP trying to save face corporately because they recently joined... We got this information via Noisy Gamer. They recently joined the Fair Play Alliance, which is some organization with a bunch of other game developers who have Mm -hmm. reportedly toxic communities and sort of best practices to fix it. And so people think that this is just them placating to that group or maybe taking steps to placate to other groups and not necessarily doing what is best for the EVE community. I think this is a subject I shouldn't stop talking about. (laughs) Are you affiliated with... uh... Uh, Twitches, yeah. Ah, I see. Well, rest in peace. I mean, I, I can say that that uh, that wouldn't match my experience with the folks that work at Fair Play, but I don't know anything about CCP's interactions with them. In other words, I don't know what CCP is is doing, but it's not the case that like Fair Play Alliance companies go around like pressuring each other in that way. That's more of a information sharing collaborative thing. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> and then it again, just more... speaking, just simply personally, as my interactions with those folks, I do not have any perfect knowledge here. Uh, to an extent, it's slightly above my pay grade, so uh, that's as far as it goes. But your personal hot take on this thing is, you think CCP? It's their responsibility, their choice, nothing wrong with the decision they made. I think that it is the case that there will be a difference between whether or not you're allowed to run for CSM and whether or not you're allowed to play EVE the game. So if it was the case that they didn't feel like they should suspend his account for what he said beforehand, I still think that gives them the the, the room to say that yes... We don't want him on our council. We don't want him representing the player base. I don't think that, like, oh, just because they didn't ban you, it's fine. I don't think that's true. Um, But at the same time, 
sure, maybe they should have done something at the time. I don't know. Um, I don't know the details of their terms of service or policies at that time. I don't know what level of visibility the initial post had. Maybe it just didn't get on their radar. It happens, um, especially when they have very small amounts of staff. So I don't know what happened before, but I think their stance now is reasonable. Um, I don't think it's like the... They can say you can't be on the council for any reason. Of the range of those reasons, I don't think this one is too out of left field. Yeah, fair enough. I would tend to disagree, but I just generally think that the way people communicate with other individuals privately should have no bearing on this sort of thing. Like, I mean, if it prohibits their ability to work with the team, then fine. But if you're digging up things from years ago, you're ignoring the fact that people change. Not only do people change, but also cultural norms change. Not saying that it was within the cultural norm the way Creature communicated, but certainly if you go far enough back in Eve's history, Eve has a history of a lot of toxic players. So I feel like you're going to be disqualifying a lot of people who were previously on the CSM if you just say, okay, open season, if you don't want a CSM member or a candidate to be on the CSM, go dig up some dirt on them and shove it in CCP's face. That's the thing I have a problem with, is they've essentially opened the door to people shoving stuff back in their face, and it is completely within their right. Like, I would totally support them if they said, no, we're not, we're not prohibiting them from doing this because of such and such. Like, they have every single right to make the decision yes or no based on what comes to them, but that doesn't mean it's going to start, it's not going to start an outrage if they don't stop someone from being on the CSM if something else comes to light after they've made this decision. I mean, to be clear, I don't think the vast majority of the CSM runs around saying the N-word, even discussing things privately with other players. And I don't think it's difficult to not do that in your EVE career. Yeah, you're not wrong. And like let's let's take some of the uh take some of the mystery out of what was said. I have the chat log. Fucking turbo N-word came up. So it's not difficult to avoid that kind of language. And I don't think that disqualifies a vast majority of qualified people from the CSM. I do know of some folks that have said it in EVE, and I think those people are assholes. So I, I'm fine with them. I'm fine with him not representing the EVE player base. It's sort of like that. Fair enough. You know another group of people who are looking to represent a particular segment of the EVE player base? Alliance tournament teams. Mm. Nice transition there, my friend. <laughs> so yes, it is Alliance Tournament time. Um, I can't help but be disheartened this year. Not only is MC not going to be playing, but I am not going to be commentating, unfortunately, what? as I announced on Twitter. What happened? Ah, uh, well, it leads us into our big story. The controversy, Alliance Tournament 16, not enough teams signed up, so there will be no feeder preliminary rounds. So there will be no need for yours truly to commentate for them. Ah, oh, no. Yeah, so just not enough alliances wanted to be in the tournament this year, the first time that has ever happened. And as a result, there is no need for the full commentary roster, and since I didn't haven't done it before, it was cut. 
that sucks. But let's look at the meta thing. Usually, there is not enough space in the Alliance tournament. There's overage, there's people bidding well above the entry fee to get in. This year, nope, not even close. What is happening? I mean, like, CCP just took the wind out of the hype train sails. Like, we already saw declining, I think declining viewership. I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but just like hanging out on Twitch last year versus the years prior when there was Eve bet around, there was definitely a lot less hype about it. And then when CCP's like, yeah, you know what? Well, they didn't come out and say it, but they were super cagey about the Alliance tournament ships. And what was even more worrying for me and MC pilots in particular was the possibility that there weren't Alliance tournaments in the future. I think that killed everyone's hype. Like, when I make the decision, do I fly in the Alliance tournament, it is not a decision of, oh, do I show up on tournament day and pay the 2500 plex entry fee. It is a matter of spending hours a day, multiple days a week, training for this thing, not to mention all the theory crafting time, plus the ISK involved in buying the ships, fitting them up, yada yada. So, previously, you could write off all of that as improving your skills, right? Those, the time that you spend now practicing theory crafting, working to get better for this tournament, it's going to be useful come next tournament time. So you're just building and building and building. It's like investing. But if there's no future returns to be had from this time, why waste it? That's a decent point. Um, I think they were cagey about the prizes. I know that there were at least significant rumors that there would not be alliance tournament prize ships this year that it would be something non-ship related something not unique possibly in other words maybe just a plex prize or something along those lines that's definitely going to kill interest um i think the ccp's commitment to the tournament was certainly in doubt since they cut the person that was in charge of putting them together and basically outsourced most of the operations to EVNT. Which, you know, EVNT did a fabulous job. I'd say better job than CCP last year on their end of the tournament production. But still, it's a signal, right? That now they're like less committed at the official level. I also think maybe it's something to do with the rules. People took a look at them and maybe the ship restrictions are a little too restrictive. Uh, maybe people just weren't as interested in in working under those uh, constraints given all the other things involved and you know it could also be just we're starting to see some effects of the player uh, player population decline in that maybe there just weren't enough groups willing to put that time in because a lot of the harder core players have been turned out or maybe the majority of the harder core players have merely conglomerated into the few alliances that did apply. That's also possible. Yeah, there have been a lot of alliance merge downs happening. And some alliance collapses. Certainly DRF is a good example of that. Uh, no more FCON either. Or not in a not in a viable state that they'd be like a contender for tournaments. I don't think it's a good sign. It can't be. I, there's no way it could be considered a good sign. I'm actually really worried. I've made a couple remarks that like Eve's player base decline hasn't really affected any enjoyment of mine for the game. That has been true right up to this point, where it has now directly cost me a spot to commentate in the tournament, which has been like 
not a lifelong goal, but at least eight years long goal. It sucks. It sucks that there are not enough alliances willing to participate in E's most prestigious tournament. And again, first time it's ever happened, we've had 16 alliance tournaments. Every single one of them prior, there have been multiple alliances that wanted to be in it, but were not able to be there. And now they just don't have enough to fully fill it out. That is very troubling. And not only that, there have been multiple tournaments run by CFC, run by EVNT, that have also had their slots fill up and people have to go through feeder tournaments to get in. Like, not only is this the most prestigious that's not getting enough thing, but there were less prestigious tournaments previously that had enough hype around them that too many groups wanted to get in than they could support. Well, some of those were small, or they were very different formats. Like the Goonswarm one, that was like an inner alliance or inner coalition thing. Some of the EVNT ones, they're talking smaller teams. They're talking teams that are not bound by alliance membership. So there is some difference there. Uh, it's not quite an apples and orange comparison. I see where you're going. It's like an apples to apples comparison, but they're very different kinds of apples. It's like a Granny Smith to I don't know any other kind of apples. <laughs> you need to watch more more My Little Pony. Lots of apple-related trivia. Well, come on then. What's another kind of apple? You got your Golden Delicious. All right, fair enough. I believe Brayburn is an apple as well. What are the green ones? Macintosh. Oh, uh, the green ones? Granny Smiths? Mmm. You're going to need more pony in your life, Artemis. I'm disappointed in you. <sighs> You know, you know. there's been a lot of talk about you know how MC and how Noir have declined since I left, and we are seeing it here, folks. I mean, just look at the state of it. The absolute state of their knowledge of My Little Pony. For that particular argument, I have no, no defense. Well, let's move on. Uh, so as I said, Hugh Kaswak who has, you know, in, in in defiance of the suggestion that the Alliance tournament turnout numbers are meaning players are less passionate about the game, has been putting together daily or near daily rather detailed news reports about the goings-on in NullSec and significant events in LowSec. This is the EVE 1900 report, posted on Reddit about 1900 EVE time every day. I tried to get you on the show, unfortunately... He was not able to make it due to some real-life circumstances, but he has provided us with an interesting update of things that are going on around EVE, and we bring that to you right now. Hi, I'm Hugh, and I write the 1900 News for the New Eden Report. You've probably seen me sort of floating around on Reddit. Uh, First of all, I'd like to apologize for not being here in person. Unfortunately, it would be uh, about midnight local time, with an exam the following day. Uh, I'm sure Yintan can relate. This does make uh, engaging with Eve uh, a little more tricky. But what I'm going to do now in just this recording, which I know Alec will sort of edit and do various audio wizardry with, is do two things. Firstly, give you a bit of background on who I am um, and sort of where I'm coming from with what I'm doing. And secondly, and honestly much more important and less self-glorifying, is the kind of three key geopolitical issues that uh, we've been seeing in New Eden 
or at least that I've seen uh, in the process of writing these reports uh, over the past month or so. So, firstly, just a bit about me. Uh, I've been playing the game for nine months. Started off with Eve Uni, where I was a, um, let's say, amateurish newbie fleet commander for a little bit. Left for um, Slice Alliance with the Corporation Cryptid Gaming, which is very good. Unfortunately, uh, I was, let's call it, blitheringly incompetent, or at least certainly not really uh, able to kind of keep pace with what the corp was doing. So I shifted over to uh, a variety of the corps, first in Darkness, then back in Slice. Uh, and I've sort of been um, staying in corp, doing the odd kind of fleet roam and etc. since then. Uh, my writing experience uh, began on the Cryptid Gaming blog, which I enjoyed. Uh, shifted over quite quickly to Eve News 24, which I stayed with for some months, getting 500 million per article. So really, it was financially a pretty solid move for me. Before shifting over to the New Eden Report with Kurt Adrano for a variety of reasons, typically relating to wanting our own brand and getting a bit more independent with what we were doing. And the 1900 News Report kind of came out of that effort because... At EN24, I'd been doing uh, these conflict summaries, which had gone fairly well and had a fair bit of positive reception, at least for EN24, considering sort of the brand issues that inherent to it at the time. When I was feeling particularly rebellious uh, at one stage, I decided to post one of my articles, not in EN24, but onto Reddit wholesale, and that got a lot of play. And so from there, I thought, well, how about I do a, a more daily and more frequent update? So that's where the kind of 900 thing comes from. Uh, of course, that's all sort of vaguely self-glorifying uh, trivia. The really key meat of kind of what I'm going to talk about, and of course what this podcast being about declarations of war is all about, are the actual geopolitical developments that we've seen, whilst everyone else has been fairly busy with the CSM season. So the first thing, obviously, and the real sort of elephant on the table, or at least elephant that was on the table before getting sort of sliced to bits, was the DRF and the fact that it has collapsed entirely. Uh, obviously, there's been a huge amount of drama surrounding that in terms of the Battle of Sitak El and Tremvirate's campaign down south, but it must be understood that this campaign against the DRF is going on for 10 months now. I know people in certain parts of the region anyway are calling it the 10-month war precisely because of this, uh, although I understand that Blue Donut War is also um, a sort of notable name for it. And you can sort of divide the fall of the DRF into a couple of key categories, the first being that effort made by Tremvirate uh, and somewhat sort of, um, briefly anyway, transiently CO2 in fighting the DRF in Inn's Mother, which culminated in the uh, destruction of Trumvert's Keepstar in February. At the time, looked like a pretty hard-fought but still fairly viable DRF victory. They fended off GTG's slightly belated invasion in the north, and they had pushed Tri out of the Tri's home. But what we felt to understand in the sort of EVE commentariat, uh, at least from my standpoint, bear in mind I've only been playing, what, six months when this actually happened, was that this completely exhausted DRF's kind of fighting potential in the main, because they compelled people to move into Inn's Mother to face harassment constantly. They, they actually didn't get around to clearing out most of Tri's staging structures in the region. They also, because they moved the bulk of the XIX uh, and Solar uh, fleet forces south to Inn's Mother, they left the north and defended. And at this point, you get Skill Yourself and Volta and various other groups like Unspoken Alliance really start savaging the drone control unit, which is the DRF's northern, but not quite renters because they do actually form part of the, did actually form part of the coalition, but um, northern associates, let, let us say, uh, with apologies to NC Dot's renting program, of course. And there you saw 
It's some pretty, what people have described as pretty pathetic performances from these, uh, jungle troll unit fighters. Although, that's the thing, is that due to this long campaign, their collapse was fairly inevitable due to war exhaustion and the fact there were three or four CTAs every single day. Some of them, in fact, I think a third of them from our correspondents anyway, being uh, off time zone for the predominantly Russian and Eastern European members uh, of the DRF uh, and the wider sort of group there. So that's kind of one really key theme, which I think would be very interesting to kind of hear the more actually expert panelists report on, is the fact that the DRF has fully collapsed in a way which is frank is frankly spectacular. The fact they've owned the drone regions in one form or another for I think approaching five years or so, and they failed to produce a super capital fleet, they failed to produce enough ISK to sustain SRPs and that sort of thing. And so that I think is a particularly interesting theme of geopolitical analysis to really kind of engage with and think about. Interestingly, I know everyone sort of stopped paying attention in CTACL and after the sort of XIX had been effectively broken as a major force, at least for now. But the war did rumble on a bit longer. Prothean Alliance kept up the fight against the Ethereum Breach Coalition in the region of Ethereum Breach. They recently lost all their solve, but they're apparently digging their heels in and still fighting against uh, mainly Unspoken Alliance now with a bit of support from Laserhawks. So that's uh, another region to be very interesting, uh, I think, going forward. And it'd be interesting to see what you guys and your staff generally think about what's going on there. So that's kind of one really interesting development, which I know was picked up on briefly at the start of the conflict in uh, DOW's podcast, I think, sometime back in April. But it has really very swiftly accelerated. The second bit is the uh, Imperium's conflict with GOTG, uh, which, of course, has been rumbling on, I think, since October of 2017. And that is a very interesting thing indeed, because that is provides some kind of answer to one of the great geopolitical questions in EVE, which is can the Imperium actually force project properly, given its incredible economic advantages? That, that means very little if it can't leave Delve. And so the fact that Asher Elias and Kendar, and I'm not sure in charge of space convicts, but uh, assuming other fleet commanders, have been able to use the SIGs and use the squads and uh, use also Init and Snuff as sort of Imperium shock troopers, uh, has been really interesting in seeing an expeditionary warfare campaign being carried out against GTG. Obviously, there are, can be claims that GTG didn't lose that particular round. Uh, after all, the Imperium forces are now returning home, and there's a certain sense that GTG is still standing. But it's notable they were forced to evacuate Cloud Ring, Pure Blind, and Fade, and give Fade over to CO2. Uh, and though this is a probably a sensible consolidation in Deckline, uh, now having moved GTG primary staging to the central Deckline so they can project an umbrella around the region, this is an example much in the same way as Skiliasov and Volta's campaign against um, DRF of an asymmetric warfare campaign carried out under an enemy capital umbrella and super capital umbrella, which is nevertheless very successful. It's also telling, I think, that NC Dot and PL put a lot of effort, relatively anyway, into defending GTG, probably because if GTG were to collapse, and if CO2 now were also to collapse, that would leave the western flank of NCPL's uh, sort of renting empire entirely open to the Imperium, and of course we have no doubt that the Imperium would happily exploit that. So that's, one could almost argue that people recognise GTG, CO2, that region as being a linchpin of the north's western flank, and therefore it could be the scene of increasing conflict going forward, uh, we know, of course, 9 Tac 4, with the um, Imperium attempt to burn down a Horde Keepstar, was another demonstration against this flank. 
So it'd be my suggestion that we're going to see increasing conflict throughout that period, uh, and uh, sorry, throughout throughout that region uh, going forward. Especially given GOTG is probably the closest um, competitor to the Imperium's economic capacity, which isn't nominally friendly with it, like Test. And that's, of course, something which certainly Aerith doesn't want to tolerate if you've been listening to his TIS episodes. So that's another kind of key area of focus, which is really interesting. The last one, um, and this is a sort of growing issue, and I'm sure Yintan knows much more about this, uh, being heavily involved with uh, red noise, as far as we can tell anyway, is this growing tension between Winter Coalition and Trumpy, and also uh, Legacy Coalition. So, of course, Legacy has fought Trumpy in the past, um, in the early stages of the Ten-Month War, although the commitment they've had to their XIX partners in the DRF were um, or questionable, as the whole situation with CTAC-L and the failure to deploy a superfleet, despite Kara believing that he was going to be reinforced by Test Superfleet. So there's there's certainly rivalries between Winter Coalition and Trumpy. It's our understanding from all of the sources, uh, well... Sources we do that we do know who the sources are, but you know, we they've chosen to stay anonymous anyway. That legacy plans some kind of invasion into Immensi going forward. Certainly, if they aren't going to do it, I would suggest that Trumpy and Winter Coalition and the Holy League up north is probably going to pull the trigger on Legacy themselves within the next couple of months because they're fundamentally PvPing alliances. They've already killed one large empire. And Legacy's right there on their border. So that that is going to likely be a scene of heavily increasing conflict going forward. And that could be very interesting, kind of like getting perspectives on the issue. And you guys there who probably have a much more knowledge about that kind of region than I do, certainly. Those are kind of really three key conflict areas. You'll notice I actually missed out Providence in this roundup, despite a fairly amount, a fairly significant amount of drama surrounding Providence and Legacy's counter-invasion against PL uh, in that time. That's because I judge that to be relatively of a non-story. PL failed to actually contest that in any meaningful sense. And so that's just an example of legacy growing into its capacity as a regional hegemon. And that speaks to a broader geopolitical trend, I would suggest, that we are now seeing, and probably have seen for some months, but it's now becoming ever more obvious, that NCPL and the general northern sort of group is in a bit of a problem because individually they can counter either the Imperium or legacy uh, in, uh, you know, individually, and they can attain force parity there, as could be seen at Nantak 4. But it, the Legacy and the Imperium working together in a sort of B, a BTAC-R 2.0, the North would be, in my estimation, quite seriously outnumbered, which is actually one indication that uh, I would suggest Winter Coalition, Trumpy, and Holy League are being pushed towards a conflict with Legacy, because that would be a... The, the, those Eastern, well, New Eastern powers would be a good counterpoint to a Legacy supercapital force. I do think that there's uh, an increasing amount of activity around the map. I think that set, you know, Calls of Eve is dying. I mean, beyond just being fairly cliche, everyone has thought, always thought Eve is dying. Increasingly untrue, and we're on the verge of at least one major conflict next month or two in the East. And there's likely precedent for ongoing conflict in the Northwest as well going forward. So that would be my sort of very cursory and inexpert analysis of the situation. So yeah, I hope that's of, of use to you. Again, sorry I couldn't be here in person, otherwise I'm sure we could have a much more interesting and substantive discussion, and uh, if I were to be invited, I'd be very happy to uh, attend a podcast recording session, which I could actually make, but uh, yeah, I hope that's a value to you. Thanks. Well, that was super interesting. Thanks, Hugh. I uh, really appreciate you sending that in. Hopefully we will get him in person very soon. I uh, definitely want to try to get him on the show. He's a very interesting guy with some very interesting 
passions about Eve, creating some really great content and making our jobs easier, certainly, uh, and jobs of anyone that tries to keep track of the goings on on Eve. You know, there's so much going on, so many different regions of the game, so many alliances fighting each other. It can be hard to keep track of, but he is doing daily recaps, which means not only are we keeping track of the major events in EVE, we're also keeping track of some of the smaller stories that are happening, such as events in Faction Warfare. It's super interesting. Uh, we did want to touch on three rather large uh, points, and, and Hugh mentioned some of them. We're going to go into a little bit more detail. And also, this is a product of us not having had a sort of a news-oriented show for the past couple shows. We've had the CSM, and we had the whole uh, CCP Seagull leaving thing. There's a lot of controversy that needed to get talked about. But the big development in Nullsec. The drone lands have completely collapsed. We covered earlier, um, I forget which episode number, but a few episodes back, we discussed that they had officially surrendered well, they have officially surrendered and withdrawn, and in their absence, the sovereignty collapsed completely, totally, and rather quickly. A lot of small alliances moving in to take their tiny slice of the pie, as well as Volta, Skill Yourself, and related alliances actually taking the lion's share of many regions, but not all of them. Several, uh, particularly in Ethereum Reach, several small alliances have come in and claimed Single systems, small constellations. Um, these are alliances that tended to be about 200 to 600 in number, and they were you know, easily half a dozen or more. I couldn't name them all. Um, but just a very interesting political situation that's going to develop there as each of these small alliances try to figure out their place in the new drone meta, if you will. Does this mean Fozzysov is a success? Small groups taking solve? I mean, I think so. Scalding Pass was another great success of Fazisav. You had small groups from Losek, small groups from Great Wildlands, fighting small groups that lived in Scalding Pass and Curse. And uh, we're talking like 10, 15, 20-man fleets tops with some large 60 versus 60 brawls and eventually you know, getting some caps in occasionally from here or there. Uh very well driven by the Sov mechanics. If you actually play into them and don't try to cheese with claws, it's a very enjoyable experience. Speaking of, we had our own campaign. Uh, so Capitalist Army, we decided to make a push for the stations. You know, the CCP was converting stations into faction citadels. These are basically going to be the alliance tournament ships of citadels. Uh, limited production. Only the ones that currently exist are going to exist. They're not going to make any more of these things. So, we took a look over at the drone lands. We saw them collapsing. We saw small alliances taking pieces of the pie, and we thought, well, why not us? So, the wheels were put in motion to take some space just before the patch. Unfortunately, as I said, Ethereum Reach was gobbled up stunningly fast and our initial deployment had to be changed to deploy into the Spire, and our primary competition was going to be Bot. Now, uh, this is Brothers of Tanga, a Renner Alliance, currently assigned to NC Dot. I had thought, initially, that the Droneland groups, Skill Yourself, Volta, 
uh, unspoken, those alliances, I assumed incorrectly that they were going to bulldoze the entire Drimlands. But they actually cut a deal with NCDOT. They were going to keep them blue, keep bot blue, and weren't actually going to touch their systems. So the reinforcements that I was seeing in there, because there were a few systems being reinforced, were not, in fact, the invaders reinforcing those systems. It was bot consolidating systems or stations that had been under DRF control. They were now taking them and putting them under their own control. But we decided to go for it anyway, because we had already put the Astrid down and moved everything up there, and it's a Renner Alliance. How tough could they be? Turns out, not that tough, but tougher than we could handle. <laughs> uh, so we put out fleets, we reinforced several stations several times, and we had a number of node fights coming close to securing a station during one of the final days of the campaign. But unfortunately, they were able to put out a defense fleet, including a rather sizable NCDOT fleet of like 20 uh, legions, I think it was. Something crazy like that. Uh, they also bat from Volta, and it was a whole big deal. But the TLDR, super fun, and the Corp learned a lot. Now, did any of this go on after the solve changes to where you could rep in Tosis? All of them went after the sob changes where you could rep in Tosis. So, so we did had... You, did you run into people just dropping a heavy tank toaster with a fax sitting on top of it? No. Uh, it seemed like the dominant meta for these guys was either Drakes or, more commonly, Nerises. Hmm. They would use the haulers to Entosis for some reason. Seems like they're still stuck in the old meta. Possibly. That's what um, that's what goons used up north to try and defend when they were kicked out of like Declan, is they used the Nerises because they could passive tank like a small group, but then they were also throw away cheap, and so if they lost them, it didn't matter. But they could also not have to worry about going back and picking up more strong because you have so much cargo in them. Mm. Well, fun fact: they don't tank very well against Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> So we initially started... Oh, they also used a bunch of griffins. And we started off with a bunch of griffins. The griffins were easily dispatched by the local renters who formed a 5-15 to 15 man defense fleet, mostly consisting of Tech 3 destroyers. Uh, so they would go from system to system and pop all of our dudes. So we're like, okay, that's, that's cool. Well, why don't we scale up a little bit? Because we had brought a Armageddon with us, just for fun. I hopped into it and was immediately able to bully around the entire destroyer fleet. They wanted no part of that whatsoever. So it was a Geddon, a Prophecy, and like, I forget what else you had, a Hecate, Hecate, whatever it is. And we were able to bully this much larger Tech 3 destroyer fleet. So you're like, okay, well these guys clearly, either they don't have anything to deal with this or they don't want to use it for whatever reason. So you're like, alright, well let's move in some more stuff. So we moved in more remote rep prophecies, Feral's fit. Uh, moved in remote, or excuse me, rapid light heavy missile, no, rapid heavy missile? Rapid heavy missile launcher, Armageddon's. So they had the uh, five rapid heavies and two 40 kilometer newts. Drones with multiple DDAs. And we're like, all right, well, let's try this. Immediate results, things went quite well for us, uh, to the point where 
We had them with a 20-man fleet, mostly Tech 3 destroyers, a few tinier bits. And I think I had a handful of cruisers or something like that. A pretty sizable fleet versus a Geddon and three remote rep profs. We jump in. We warp to them. Now, we have a carrier and backup, but they don't know that. <laughs> it's hidden, and they haven't spotted it that we were able to tell. We jump in. We warp in. They're in Tosising some iHub or something that they wanted to take over. We land at zero, and they warp off. <laughs> Outnumbered like five to one. And we were just sitting there like, oh, I, I, I guess warp the carrier back because we don't need it. And so that worked really well for a little while. Uh, we tried a few more timers, weren't able to get the numbers. Our corp is still pretty small. Um, and some of the timers were super awkward. But eventually we got a really good timer. Put out a fleet. It was uh, Intosis Geddon, Hecate Saber. Uh, and I think that's what we opened with. And we did pretty well. Uh, we were actually winning the timer for a good long while. Um, we got a few kills off it. It was quite nice. But then they brought in that Legion fleet. And I was like, uh, I guess we're done. Well. <laughs> yep. And through all of this, Volta decided to help their blues out by reinforcing our staging Astro House with a carrier. And the second time around... They didn't use the carrier, they used a Hawdred to reinforce it, which is a little obnoxious. Um, was your astronaut anti-camp fit? It didn't have any modules at all, it was super cheap. Oh, okay. Why didn't you go with a Raitru then? It's cheaper. Uh, I wanted it to be a little less attackable. Okay. Just in terms of, like, vulnerability time, the DPS, and all that stuff. Well, I guess vulnerability times weren't as big of a deal because the patch happened, but... They do have a higher defensive threshold. And I had, you know, if we had taken something, I would have wanted to, like, put modules into it, maybe. Mm -hmm. Just to protect it, but yeah. So we just went with the Astro. We could have gone for the Raituru, I suppose. Um, just ultimately decided not to. So were you guys, like, cloaky camping the systems, putting up gate camps, trying to, like, lower their morale or lower the ADMs at all? Or was it just when you had time and dudes, you'd go in and you'd make a timer? Uh, we we would go in sometimes solo to make timers, and then we'd do some roams around. I think the Europeans did some camps because we had a lot of traffic through the system we were in, but we didn't have the cloaky camping capabilities that we had, say, with Noir, just because we didn't have as many actives, and the actives we had weren't as skilled. They weren't as hardcore. Um, gotcha. It's a much more casual corp than Noir was, so... We did do roams around, though. Uh, tried to catch V&Is, tried to catch Caps. No luck on the Cap front. Did catch a couple Vexers, which was nice. We kept trying to catch um, a Rattlesnake in my... Because I was wondering if my Ishker could tank it. I figured it couldn't, but I figured it wouldn't hurt to try. They kept running from me. Goddamn things kept warping away. Well, you know, you never know if you're going to have, like, a Sino or something. Yeah, I know. Very, very scary, signing the no other online members that I had at the time. Of course, there's no way for them to know that. You could very well just have dreads on login screen. And you know That's who true. certainly had dreads on login screen? Triumvirate. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
So uh, transitioning into that story, ultimately unsuccessful in the defense. We lost the Astra House. We learned a fuck ton about remote rep prophecies. A lot of the folks in the corp had never run them before or hadn't run them in a long time. So we had a couple practice drills with that. There was a lot of learning to be had. Our One of our newest recruits, Zetian, got tons of firsts. His first in Tosis, his first fleet bigger than three people, his first remote rep fleet, his first time in a prophecy, his first kills. It was awesome. So uh, props to him. Props to everybody that turned out. Great uh, logistics job by Nightjester and Trackley. They were able to move carrier loads of ships, about six Sinos, into the drone lands, which is really impressive. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a good time. We didn't get what we wanted, but we learned a lot and had fun. What more can you ask for? Well, I'll tell you what more you can ask for. Tons of dead super gaps. <laughs> uh, the DRF forces that withdrew to Insmother probably now wish they didn't because things did not go well. Artemis? So the basic deal is uh, Triumvirate had been kicking the DRF's butt, and the DRF realized that they just had to evac. There's a lot of speculation about the terms with which they were given the ability to basically crash on Legacy's couch. Some people claiming that they were joining Legacy Coalition, Legacy Coalition saying, uh, no. That didn't happen, and so that was a thing. But basically, Triumvirate before this had gone around and killed all of the DRF Fortizars that they could possibly use to move from their current staging to their new home. So even though they didn't really know the exact route that they were going to take, they had a pretty good idea, and moreover, that they knew that this move fleet would be vulnerable because they had killed all of the structures they could possibly use to move safely. And so they finally found out where they were going to move to. They were using, they were effectively sinoing in 300 kilometers away from this regional gate, jumping down, taking the gate, and then warping to a test Fortizar on the other side. And so what Triumvirate did is they just waited for them to sino in, and then bubbled the caps that were 300 kilometers, or pardon me, the super fleet that was 300 kilometers off a gate. And there have been a lot of stories, a lot of AARs, a lot of coverage from various media sources about the exact story of what happened. There was a lot of holding back forces, not committing everything, because they wanted DRF to think that they could win, and they wanted DRF to drop more and more super caps. So they could really just kill everything. And DRF fell for a hook, line, and sinker. There have been posts that said we were, we thought we were going to take this fight and win it. They were totally blindsided by the additional forces. Yep. And at the end of the day, it was what four trillion? Yep. Something trillionesque destroyed between both sides. With obviously the bulk of that being against DRF. Indeed, it is just wow. <laughs> Is that more or less than Titanomachy? I am not sure. I find it interesting, like, the one thing that I was looking at while the kill mills were still loading is I was looking at all of these ships and all these super capitals that were fully loaded. Like, this was all of these people's assets they had ever. They were moving everything, right? These were fully packed move fleets. And even still, you had very few titans over 100 bill. 
you had extremely cheap super carries, even though they were pimped to the brim. But freaking Roracles Online has made it such that these super capitals are worth just so, so little of a fraction of what they used to be. It was insane to me. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately for the DRF, they were pimped out. These were, I mean, not all of them, but a significant portion of their supers in particular, the super carriers, were ratting fit. They were straight from PvE. They were not fit for combat like this, which is why they went down remarkably quickly when the fighting started. Um, obviously, they prioritized Titans, or at least for a little while, to try to get those kills. But when it came time to move over to the super caps... Um, Trihead posts that they were just shocked at how quickly they went down. That's because they were not they were not fit for a combat operation. Like you said, this was moving. This was trying to get your ratting super to where it needed to be. This was not a fight they were expecting. And when they took it and committed, again, they thought they had this in the bag. They didn't think it was going to be the difficult fight that it was, let alone one that they would totally lose. And Tri really played it incredibly well in terms of concealing their forces. And because it was a move fleet, they didn't have anywhere near the faxes that they needed. Like, if you have the proper number of faxes, you can keep your super fleet alive against another massive super fleet. It's the unfortunate nature of faxes. But they didn't have them, because all of those presumable fax pilots were in their supers. They weren't ready with faxes in range. They were in the middle of a move-up. <laughs> So it was a, just shame. a recipe for a disaster, and Triumvirate made it well. So that's uh, that's pretty much it for them. I don't think uh, DRF poses a serious threat to try after that fight. Their morale's tanked. They lost a good portion of their super fleet. Um, I believe the count is roughly half of their total. That's what was lost. Now, I'm sure they have money to replace it, but they lost most of their money-making abilities. So even if they fully replace that fleet, which itself would be extremely expensive, and they probably don't have that cash on hand, they really don't have any way to replenish after that. So I don't think they're going to be fighting wars anytime soon. On the other hand, reportedly, Legacy is looking to fight another war even after they just finished up in Providence. Yeah, this is, uh, there's some controversy as to whether this is actually going to happen or this is rumor that's become fact type situation. But there have been tensions rising between Legacy and Winter Coalitions. That's Test Brave and their constituent alliances and Triumvirate and Fraternity and their constituent alliances. However, both sides have reasons not to fight. Uh, Pro-God legend Tess FC has come out and said, this is fake news, we're not interested in this war, at least right now. Uh, Try, for their part, have to be fucking exhausted at this point. They've been fighting war for nearly a year. Uh, Fraternity, I think, is less exhausted than Try. They're probably more interested in this war than anyone else. It could be that they take some kind of action or that sort of brings all sides into it, but I'm sure Try would not mind having a break for a couple months. And it doesn't seem like... Well, I suppose Test and Brave would be interested in the war, potentially, but they're in a really good place right now. I don't think they are really interested in fighting anyone. 
They just came off a win, fighting Pandemic Legion. They've got Providence to restore. You know, I think they're probably more in just a wait-and-see-where-things-go mode. Unless they really want to start something. I, I don't know. I just don't see it right now. Maybe in a few months. The other unknown piece to this puzzle is the Holy League. At least that's the name they've either been given or chosen or just has become popular enough to be canon which is Skill Yourself, Hard Knocks, uh, Volta, those type of groups who kicked DRF out of the drone lands. Fucking love that name. Where do they go now? They have been killing whales down in Legacy Space, but then again, the way that they kill whales, at least to a certain extent, is by rolling wormholes. Granted, they do have super caps that they use to gank whales, and so those have to be explicitly moved somewhere in order to gank them. So the question is, where are they moving their super capital whale ganking fleet? And wherever they move it to, will it also collapse like the DRF did? Because no one saw that coming. And something people may not see coming as well is, will the DRF just turn right around and take the drone lands back? Like, yes, they have been dealt a massive blow, but the Holy League, they're actively trying to sell the space. They're clearly not interested in keeping it. They wanted the cash grab, or they wanted content, or they were just sort of overfishing, whatever. But this space may be ripe for the taking if there is a strong enough group to take it. You may just have to wait till Holy League set their sights on some greener ganking pastures. Well, that's interesting. It could also be that they wind up just selling it over to NC Dot and. Brothers of Tangra expands to the entire drone lands. That is also something I could see happening. I don't think NCDOT would buy it, though. Like, that is so much space to have to protect. Oh, protect. Who's really attacking it? Well, that's the point, right? If NCDOT buys it with the renter group, then it's exactly the same as with the DRF, although NCDOT wouldn't be currently at war. Like, if NCDOT absorbs all this space... It's just another bunch of renters in the drone lands, except instead of Russian, they're now whatever time zone bot is. I don't know. The, the space out there is not bad in terms of the money that could be made out there. It's just the logistics, which is why a lot of alliances aren't interested in moving up there. But, you know, with the moon revamp and everything, eh... I think a lot of people currently undervalue the drone lands from what it could be. If you were willing to put the effort in for the logistics or just, you know, found some group to sell it to or rent it to, that's a lot of money to be made out there, and NCDOT likes money. Put it to you like this. Could you, as a small alliance, effectively make the logistics happen if you didn't blue everyone along the logistics route? Like, do you have to be blue with people in order to make the logistics happen, or could you go out there as a neutral entity and take this space? So doubling back to our campaign against Bot and the Spire, which is one of the deepest regions, yes, you can. We blued no one and did just fine. Do you think you could do an entire alliance worth of logistics for that? Yeah, probably. It would, if anything, it would be easier than just doing it the way we did it. Of course... You actually have to have an alliance with walls and creativity and members that are willing to go the extra mile. 
So are you telling me that that alliance does not exist in EVE right now, Alec? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, maybe some of the smaller alliances like in Ethereum Reach, maybe they're these types of alliances. There are small alliances that have taken some space. I don't know. We'll see. Ultimately, it's a uh, it's a proof of concept kind of thing. We've got to see people go out there and actually do it. But those alliances, you know, if they grow strong over there, perhaps they're going to want to expand their territories. That could be a future source of conflict. Um, but in terms of the regions that were entirely conquered by Holy League, I don't see them being taken piecemeal by smaller groups. I definitely see them selling it off or making some kind of political deal for a larger power that's going to come in and take probably the vast majority of that space. I think NC dot would make sense. I don't see the DRF moving back in. If they did, uh, I don't know. That could play out very interestingly uh, if they did move back. But would they be willing to buy the space they just lost to move back there? I don't know how that would go. Even if they did, they wouldn't quite be the same power that they used to be. Especially now, like I said, they lost half their super cap fleet. Not to mention all the morale loss. And now they're paying for the space they just fought and lost to keep. That's got to be. Uh, your, your line members got to feel bad about that. Well, let's move on to the other interesting thing that's happened. Into the Abyss patch has launched. Artemis, I understand you've run some of the smaller sites. I have. So I've been focusing on the T1 to T3s, mostly because I feel like this is where the majority of the player base is going to dip their toe in the water, if you will. And so what I was looking for is how can they be run, how easy are they, and are they worthwhile, right? Like... Anybody can go out to Nullsec and get a pretty decent income, just V&I ratting or what have you. So what I'm looking at is, is the Abyss a viable alternative for income? Or is it interesting enough to give up a little bit of income? And so the other thing that I found was, with the Abyss, the way that it's separated from the rest of EVE, if you discount the fact that you're going in there and getting loot and bringing it back out to sell, it's like a completely different game. Like, you've got EVE mechanics in there, you've got the EVE IP in there, but just something clicked in my brain where I stopped flying like I fly in regular EVE. So I've lost a Mauler, three Caracals, two Vigilance, and a Healer to this thing, and I just kept throwing money at it. And normally, I wouldn't do that. Like, I'd stop, I'd do some research, i find out, okay, how do I scam this? How do I just make it happen? But instead, for some reason, I just went in and tried to brute force it. I'm like, I'm going to solve this problem on my own like I would in a normal other game that is not EVE. So it, for some reason, it being separated, it being instanced, you being away from everyone else in EVE, clicked something in my brain... Where it's like, I want to solve this problem of how to run the Abyssal Sites. And frankly, I have. It's not very original. You can use a Gila, refit one mid-slot, and your drones. You don't even have to refit your drones if you don't want to. And you can run every single Tier 3 site. Tier 1, Tier 2, or Tier 3. It's not that difficult. 
the reason I lost so many ships was because I didn't want to use the Gila. I knew it could be done. I wanted to try if I could use a T1 cruiser. So I test out the Mauler. You can do it okay. You can't quite run tier 3s. You can, but if you get unlucky with the spawn, you're dead. Caracals similarly work well. You can run some tier 3s. You can run more than you could with a Mauler. But again, if you get unlucky, you're dead. If you mess up your piloting, moreover, you're dead. Because I was using rapid light fits with some ancillary shield boosters, so there's some interaction with clouds inside of the abyss. And the vigilance, I was particularly looking at the... There are different kinds of sites. They have different weather effects. And the weather effect that everybody thought was going to be terrible was the dark site. Because it has a reduction to your turret velocity and an increase to speed. And so, like, people using drone ships or whatever, your drones are going to be affected by this weather effect as well. So they orbit closer, they orbit faster, they effectively screw their own tracking. And I went in there thinking, okay, how do I counteract this? I can use webs to slow ships down. What's a good webbing ship? A vigilance a good webbing ship. Well, the vigilance a turret ship. How do I deal with a range reduction? I just fit rails. So I went in there with a rail vigilant, and what I found is you can run 99% of tier 3 dark sites, they're just a few which are just going to nuke you. <laughs> and so that's when I finally gave it's like, okay, if I want to do this completely safely, because at the time it was worth the isk, I just have to use a healer. Hmm. However, CCP has recently adjusted the drop rates, and it is no longer worth my time. No, not longer worth your time at all. No. Like, I, I haven't messed with the Tier 4 or Tier 5s, but from what I'm seeing from the killboard, from what I'm hearing from other people running these sites, there's no real way to do those that you're going to do it without loss. And frankly, the payouts that I am seeing at the very least aren't high enough to make the risk of loss worth it. Like, over time, if you add up all the SQ gain versus all the SQ lose from losing your multi-billionist sacrilege, plus your implants because you get potted, I don't think it's worth it. Other people, I'm sure they're doing it, but for me personally, I'm just gonna go hod red rat. If you can't hod red rat, though, it may be your thing. For, like, people in high sec, for people maybe in low sec or low SP, for people who don't have access to null sec income or even wormhole income, I do think it is better than all of the other isk making sources out there, and certainly more entertaining. Like, I quite enjoyed my time trying to solve the problem of abyssal sites. Especially because even once you have a fit that works, you have to pay attention to what rats spawn. It's random as to what rats spawn, as to what structure spawns, so there are different clouds which will either bloom your signature radius or hurt your tank in some way. There are structures which may kill your drones or smart bomb essentially missiles. Also ones that just give you and the rats massive bump buffs to tracking. So you really have to be engaged with the gameplay the whole time, and I found that to be refreshing because apart from actual PvP, it's the only other EVE mechanic where you have to be engaged. Like, even Exploration, the minigame, you can basically just do a click fest and get through it. It's not something that you have to engage that part of your brain to do. But with the mm -hmm. abyssal sites, if you're not paying attention, you're gonna die. That is cool. I like the sound of that. I wish... And maybe it's the more rewarding at the higher tiers. But, you know, obviously the harder it is... The few less people are going to want to try it, so you have to 
balance that risk reward. I'm thinking of trying it with a sacrilege. You can certainly do it. I lost a sacrilege in a tier 3 electrical, I believe it was, because I ran into. Uh, shoot, it was a multi Lashak spawn. The Lashaks being the new Triglavian ships where they spool up their damage. And effectively, what happened is the first room in the site was a multi Vedmax spawn, which are the cruisers. And there's like six of them in there. And their tank had spooled up because I, I basically, I didn't know which one was the remote repping one. And so I shot the wrong ones to begin with and it took too long to kill. So their damage spooled up and I had to heat my tank like crazy. I literally got out of that room in 2% hull. Ooh, wow. But in the process, I burned out my ballistic control systems. So by the time I get into the third room and now I've got Lashak's, the Lashaks are repping each other, and I can't break their tank anymore. And so it's just, well, when the 20-minute timer goes away, I'm dead. I think the 20-minute the timer CCP put on this thing is the key point that you have to bear in mind. It's a DPS race not only in the fact that you have to kill them before they kill you, but also in the fact that if you take too long killing them, the site's just going to disappear, and it's going to take your ship and your pod with it. Hmm. Interesting. I could also go Demos. That was my other idea. Like, I don't know. I've got to go in there and see what it's like. Was your... Did you do a dual rep, sack? Yes. Okay. And how many BCUs? Just one? Mm-hmm. And then I had... Basically, I was trying to make a fit that would run every single weather effect, so I could just chain run them and not care which ones dropped in the loot. Right. And I lost it in an electrical. So I had a reactive control, and then damage control, etc. Okay. Oof, well, I will uh, be running them this coming week, so we will see. You're running them on the CCP stream at 0400 Thursday. Y'all want to come out and check it out. If the sacrilege doesn't work out for you, I did make a video tutorial on how to run the T3 darts with a Gila, so... Yeah, I don't know. I've been using the healer for ratting, and I'm just not that impressed. Not as impressed as I thought I'd be. I'm probably fitting it wrong, but that's fine. I want to make sure it still has a little bit of PvP capability, so I dropped a slot for a scram. And then the tank is not as great as I was hoping. Yeah, that would do it. That scram, though. Just in case anybody comes in to fuck with me. Well, with the they can only camp outside, so you can no, just no, no. I, I'm talking about outside. my like sight ratting, sight ratting. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's get into some host highlights. My host highlight: I ran my first Spectre fleet. That was pretty fun. Took uh, shield raxes out, some gank raxes. Went into Providence just to see who was around. Not a lot of folks, unfortunately. We got uh, killing a Drake. Almost got a really good-looking fight against an armor fleet, but they decided to chicken out. That's unfortunate. It would have been awesome, but whatever. We eventually ran into an Osprey Navy fleet, which could have kited us to death, so we just did some fancy footwork and managed to outrun them and get out of the region. All told, it was about two hours long, and uh, I had quite a good time. I think next time around, things that I've learned... 
from turnout, uh, like Spectre Flight's overall turnout, I think we got 20 at our top, which is not bad. Uh, I expected low turnout for my first fleet, but it just seems like, uh, in general, their numbers are not that high in the times that I can play. So I'm thinking we're going to do more armor fleets in the future so we can have more folks with tackle and rely less on specific individuals to carry those points. So I'm thinking uh, something with Ishkers next time around. That's, uh, that's where I'm leaning. Cool. Well, my host highlight is not a repeat. It's going to sound very familiar, but things turn out very differently. So my last ho highlight, I was in Aquarius, I was in a Falcon, hazing summon toasters, and they brought out like a bunch of cloaky T3s and recons and stuff to try and catch me. I made their life a pain, I made it take hours for them to finish this Sentosis job, but in the end, they won. Things turned out differently this time. I have a Falcon fit that I made a while ago as a joke, and... Some Bastion dudes came into Veil of the Silent to Entosis MC's pocket, which we got up there for the stations. And I took my Jamgoo out. And the Jamgoo fit is cloaky, of course. It's got combat probes. It's interdiction nullified. It has its own links. And its jams reach out to 100 kilometers. So I took my Jamgoo out to Veil, made the 20 or so jumps from the tribute pocket. Found out what ships they were in, launched my mobile depot, refit to the proper jams, because they had three Entosis and Drakes and about four other miscellaneous support ships. There was a Jaguar, there were a couple of Scepters, things like that. And when I get there, they're just finishing up, hitting a couple of iHubs. They'd already gotten the stations. My, my Tengu was too slow, they'd toasted the stations before I could even get there. But they're on some iHubs, and they finished two of them off before I can get to them. But the third one was the A3 TAC iHub, and so I go in there at range, overheat, stay cloaks, go in at 100, use my combat probes, align out, overheat my jams, lock up the target, jam it, warp. That's, that's the way this fit works. It's freaking broken. I don't think it should work, especially because this was happening after the patch where CCP has the thing where an active Entosis mod gives you plus 100% sensor strength, but it works anyway because RNG is just great. So I do this over and over and over again. And the great part is I know that they're using T1 and Tosis links. So I just set a timer. Or I don't even set a timer. I watch Eve time and I write down at what time I have to go back and jam them again because they're almost finished with their five-minute warm-up cycle. So I'm bouncing through these three systems, stopping the one guy in the iHub, the other two who had moved on to TCUs. In the meantime, their Scepter fleet is trying to tackle me. They're completely failing. They're making a good effort. Like, these guys were dropping cans 100 kilometer in various warp-ins that I had previously used to try and decloak me when I warp in. Anytime I'd warp in on the grid with one of the drakes, they'd overheat burn straight for me. Like, they really cared. Eventually... This is the reason I was happy I was in my jam going on my Falcon. They dropped a bubble on top of their Drake so that if I warped in, I'd land in the bubble, but I was interdiction nullified. Mm. At the end, they had to move a second Drake onto this iHub to try and fix it to have both of them spooled up, but I was still able to just keep both of them jammed within that five minute time frame to not worry about it and keep the third Drake in another system on a TCU also jammed. 
at the end, it was like an hour or so of them trying to entosis, not getting through their warm-up cycles, and they just leave. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I was so happy, because you could tell the frustration over time as they're slower to react to the Tengu, as they stop dropping cans, as they move the second Drake onto the iHub, thinking, okay, maybe if we double up on the entosis, we can do it. But seriously, CCP, jams are broken, and entosis. Fix it, please. CC, please. I would love just a total redo of the ECM mechanic. Just completely out of the box, rethink it. Yeah. Maybe it uh, doesn't prevent you from shooting things, but like turns your UI off or something like that. Okay, you are... Calm down, Satan. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome, though. Like, none of your, your overview doesn't work. You know... Tactical overlay turns off for 30 seconds. That'd be great. Zero impact on F1 monkeys, 100% impact on elite PvPers. This sounds like a great change to the game. <laughs> Fine, maybe it also turns off your, your module overview, so you have to know that you need to F1. And uh, wait, <laughs> the hotkey is for your microwave drive and all that stuff. Broadcast. Get rid of the fleet broadcast. You can't get broadcasts yeah. in. No broadcasts, no nothing. Or if you do if you do get broadcast, you never see them. For the record, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can see it, but like it flickers and there's there's static like like the Enterprise and the Mutara Nebula. Okay, I no, we we gotta stop here. Take us out, Alec. No. <laughs> Alright, that's it guys. Go to declarationsofwar.com to participate in the poll for this show and leave a comment on the episode. As usual, a reminder, the Capitalist Army is recruiting. Uh, we are doing a big recruitment push over the next month or two. We're trying to get our numbers up, specifically cap ships. So if anyone is thinking of rolling heavy, Capitalist Army could use a few good capitalists. Join Capitalist Chat in-game for more info. Get our Discord link. Come hang out. Wherever you are, good hunting, listeners.